Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I'm Cathy Weiss and this is Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio. Increasingly, what is defended as a choice is not a triumph over oppression, but another name for it. Janice G. Raymond, not a choice, not a job, exposing the myths about prostitution and the global sex trade. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. And I'm speaking to Associate Professor Bronwyn Winter about women, insecurity and violence in a post-9-11 world. Now, would you like to uh, give us a bit of background information about yourself? And that gives you Director of the European Studies Program at the University of Sydney, where I also teach and Global Studies Program. My research work, my publications cover quite a broad range of themes and broad range of countries, but they're mainly focused on intersections of gender, sexuality, ethnicity, religion, violence and the state and globalisation as well in a transnational context. My politics, I would describe them as radical feminist. Well, it was very appropriate that you're on the program Radical Philosophy. Indeed. <laughs> so, and now you co-edited the, the book with Susan Hawthorne. And what, what was it that inspired you to do that? Well, it was in the wake of 9-11, and I, had, I remember listening to the radio the morning, you know, after it happened, or the, it was early morning here in Australia, and I heard it on the radio, and I'm thinking, this is like an Orson Welles War of the Worlds broadcast from the 1930s in the US, where people thought it was true, and it was, a, it, well, it wasn't a deliberate hoax, but people who didn't catch the beginning of the program announcing that he was reading from a book thought it was true. And I'm thinking, this must be something like that. And I turned on the television, I saw the Twin Towers falling and so on and so forth, and I thought, my goodness, this is, this is extraordinary. And so weeks went past, and my then-girlfriend said to me, well, you know, there needs to be a feminist book about this, because there were things being published everywhere, and most of them were by men, and none of them were feminist. And she said, there needs to be a feminist book about this, and you should write it. And I said, well... No, I don't think I should write it myself. I think there should be an anthology because I was reading stuff that was coming out on the email and, you know, on websites and all over the place in blogs. And I, I was reading so many. There was so much circulating among feminists as responses to 9-11. I said, I think it would be much more interesting to do a transnational anthology. So I contacted Susan Hawthorne with the idea and said, what do you think? And she thought it was great. So we got together and, and did the anthology, which has something like... 90 different or a, close to 90 different entries and it's divided into two parts so there's immediate reactions there's reactions and then there's reflections and so there are reactions which go over three phases which are the actual attacks the beginning of bombing of afghanistan and when kabul falls 
in, in early 2002. And so there were three phases of the reactions. And then there's more reflective, in-depth pieces. All of which, all except two of the pieces were written in response to 9-11 and many of them were written for the book. There were two, one by Cynthia Enlo, one by Valentine Mohadam, which had been written a year or two before the book, but they agreed to include them because they were so relevant. So that's how the book happened. (laughs) Uh, Could you give us a definition of the world? A definition of the world? Well, it depends who you're talking to what the world is, because we think we know what it is, but... Usually in so-called realist, you know, like sort of real politic, international relations, which is basically about guns and money and security and, you know, states being able to get what they can in the world, which is pretty chaotic. And most of international relations study tends to be about what states do in pretty much a transatlantic axis, with sometimes China and Russia thrown in, yes? And so the rest of the world can often be neglected. So that's one thing. Another aspect of the world, and the reason I I sort of asked this question in the book, because there's a whole chapter, What is the World? (laughs) And uh, because there was a BBC book that came out among the many, many wake of 9-11 books, although there weren't many feminist ones, ours was the first feminist anthology. But among the many books that came out, there was a BBC anthology with The Day That Shook the World, which was actually, I think, a film title that got picked up and reapplied to 9-11. And I said, well, shook the world. What world are we talking about? Whose world? Who lives in this world? So I wanted to interrogate the world. So defining the world became quite an interesting exercise. So usually the world gets defined by UN memberships or the number of nation states that exist in the world or the sort of world regions, macro regions like the Americas and Africa and Europe and so on. Asia and Australia is in this bizarre place called Oceania, which, you know, I always find peculiar as as a nomenclature because it's actually a colonial term. But what a state is then became something to interrogate because there are states that are recognized by other states that are called constitutive states, and then there are states that are not recognized by other states that are called declarative states. So, for example, South Sudan, which is now a constitutive state that was recognized and is a UN member and all the rest of it, was originally a declarative state because it just asserted it existed and nobody recognized it, yes? So, and then there are micronations, and Australia actually has the world's most micronations, starting with the Hutt River province over in WA, I think it is, and a few other places. So there are many, many micronations. And then if you look at the world from different perspectives, so you have a southern focus, so we talk about global north and global south, but then directionally for Australia that doesn't fit because Australia is actually geographically in the south. So talking about Australia as part of the global north is just a little bit weird. And Australia is a middle-level power. It sort of doesn't fit in the sort of Euro-American Western bloc quite as neatly, neither does New Zealand. So looking at these sorts of terms that are all inadequate for describing the world and how the different bits of the world relation to, relate to each other. Then there's the BRICS, which is the, you know, the, the stronger emerging economies. That's a, to- a term that was coined by Goldman Sachs at the beginning of this millennium. And the BRICS are um, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and now I think South Africa is also included. And the BRICS have now formed their own association and they've got their own development bank. And then you've got regional organizations like the European Union, which is actually supranational, and you've got other organizations like ASEAN and Mercosur and so on. So when we actually start to think about what the world is and how it's patterned and who relates to whom in it, it becomes quite a complicated enterprise. But 
what the bottom line of what the world is, is that the nation state becomes the sort of minimum defining unit. And then there's, you know, those nation states then also need to be recognised by other nation states to participate formally in how we conceptualise the world. So I think you've partly answered the next question, which is what is the relevance of this definition? Well, yeah, I mean, the thing is, when we start to talk about 9-11 and the world, and we look at like all the post-9-11 literature, it's basically around what the US and its allies were doing in relation to Iraq, Afghanistan, to some extent Pakistan as a sort of Afghanistan overflow, and then in relation to Israel and Palestine, yes? And so how we define the world becomes organized around, well, where the US wants to sort of shift its war to next. And then Southeast Asia becomes part of that world and the Horn of Africa becomes part of that world because the second front in the war on terror is the US base in Djibouti, which is a tiny little country on the Horn of Africa which nobody knows anything about. And it's, it's the only US base in Africa. So, and it became a site from which the US could aim drones at you know, places like Yemen. And the Philippines became its main partner in the Asian front on the war on terror. And there's a long, long colonial legacy between the Philippines and the United States and a long legacy of military occupations and, and corporations as well. So the world starts expanding little by little, but we've still got large swathes of the world that we don't really talk about in relation to 9-11. We don't talk about most of... We don't talk about East Asia. There's an Indian subcontinent, Eastern Europe, South America. How were these bits of the world affected by 9-11 and were they affected by 9-11? Because if we're going to talk about how the world's women were affected, we need to know where those women are and whether they were all affected in the same way. Now, uh, you and Susan took quite a while to write this book, so can you tell us a bit about the... Ah, no, no, there were two different books. So oh, Susan okay. and I, the book that Susan and I did appeared very, very quickly. That was September 11th, 2001, Feminist Perspectives. It took 10 months to publish. From the time I first took the idea to Susan in October 2001 to the time it was published in August 2002, it was what? It was eight months, nine months? Yeah. Oh, okay, so that was, so that was that fairly was, quick. That was a quick yep. book. That was a very, very quick book. The, the book that we've, you, we've, you've introduced today, Women in Security and Violence in a Post-9-11 World, is a book that I authored on my own, and it was published in March this year by Syracuse University Press in the United States. So Spinifex Press in Melbourne published the 2001 book, and that's became quite famous internationally. It's even got celebrated as a feminist classic a few years ago in a U.S. Women's Studies journal. But this other one is a follow-up monograph to that original anthology that Susan and I did. And the monograph did indeed take a long time to write. So Yeah, so can you explain about uh, why it took so long to write and a bit about the process of writing it? Well, it took a long time to write because I wanted to investigate what was happening. I actually had a lot of activist contacts that I met in Australia actually shortly after 9-11 with whom I developed relationships with the Philippines. I went to the Philippines a few times over the following decade, including to, to Mindanao, where there's been, you know, the, the, the state of emergency military occupation declared by Duterte recently because of Islamic State starting to become active in western Mindanao, which is Muslim Mindanao in the Philippines. And so I visited Mindanao. I visited Holo, which is in the Sulu Archipelago, which is the stronghold of Abu Sayyaf, which is a an indigenous, a local, if you like, terrorist Muslim organization. 
And I visited the former bases in Clark and Subic and a few other places in the Philippines. So that sort of became part of an investigation I did and something I started to work on independently of writing a book about 9-11. I wrote a few articles about sex tourism and militarization in the Philippines. I also went to, in the middle of the 2010s, no, of the middle of the noughties it was, the middle of the noughties, so the last decade, I went to um, one of the Women in Black conferences that was organized in Jerusalem. Women in Black was founded in West Jerusalem after the first intifada by Ashkenazi women, primarily Ashkenazi women in Israel, who wanted to oppose the occupation, who wanted to say, this is not in our name, we need to stop the violence, we need to stop the occupation, and we need to say this is women. And Women in Black then became a worldwide movement, and I had connections with Women in Black as well, including in Sydney. So I went to a Women in Black conference and went back to Israel at another moment and you know, did a little bit of traveling around Israel and into the occupied territories with my peacenik friends in Israel. And... So I started to investigate how these different parts of the world were impacted by 9-11. I started to look at the sorts of security legislation that had developed in Australia in the wake of 9-11. There was something like 30 different pieces of, you know, anti-terrorism legislation in Australia. There's quite a lot. And started just to look, investigate, put feelers out and investigate what was going on in different places and where were, you know, where were the 9-11 sites and where were the non-9-11 sites and how did 9-11 become a sort of framing mechanism in different places of the world. And it took a long time to write because post-9-11 doesn't stop. There isn't a moment where you can say, well, the impacts of 9-11 are over now and we can move on to something else. The, the effects of 9-11 clearly began before 9-11 because it's quite easy to say post hoc ergo propter hoc. You know, 9-11 happened, something else happened after 9-11, therefore it's because of 9-11. Those are sorts of very easy amalgams to make, yes, and, and one needs to be aware of, you know, just making sort of drawing neat lines between things or even things that happen simultaneously and not necessarily related, but sometimes they are in ways you don't expect. At the same time, even though some of the stage was set for 9-11 before 9-11, and I investigate that in the book as well, in, in this latest monograph. It's really hard to find a stopping point. And every time I sort of wanted to finish the book and get it published, something else came up and I got distracted by some other thing in my work or some other thing I had to attend to in my research, and the book never got finished. <laughs> and I got to the point where I've really got to get this damn thing done because it's important to say these things. And in the end... What happened was the Arab Spring happened, so-called Arab Spring. I say so-called because that's a term that's given in the West and in the Arab world, but I don't actually call it the Arab Spring. But that happened from late 2010 in Tunisia, which was a trigger site, and I'd done a little bit of work in North Africa, so I was quite interested in what was happening in Tunisia. And, and that, you know, had repercussions in other places. And we had movements to the right and even extreme right in both Israel and Palestine, which is, you know, really had quite tragic impacts for, for both places. And then there were the attacks in Paris in January 2015. And Paris is my other home. And I was finishing the book as those attacks happened. And because I lived in Paris for many years. And I was finishing the book as the Paris attacks happened. And there was this most extraordinary debate after the Paris attacks happened, which I'll go back over in a moment, if you wish. But there was this very, very, very big debate about racism and Muslims and, you know, and the right to free speech and satire and blah, 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 and terrorism, of course. And so 
I had to write another chapter about that. (laughs) 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 The book just sort of could could be a never-ending story. (laughs) So that became the last chapter. And when I did revisions for the book after reviews from the the publisher, the November attacks happened in Paris in 2015. And so... The, the, the January and November attacks in Paris and the reactions there too and the way the French state reacted and the way the world reacted and the sorts of debates that happened became the final chapter in the book because they were also part of the wake of 9-11, yeah? Because if we have IS now, it's also because Iraq got into... You know, Iraq became such a mess and Syria became a mess. Iraq became a mess largely because of US intervention and Syria became a mess for all sorts of reasons, but there where the U.S. might have intervened and done some good, it didn't. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Syria became a mess for different reasons. So, and these great instabilities in the Middle East were, were the fertile ground in which IS was able to grow. And we already had Al-Qaeda, and we had Al-Qaeda in the Gulf, and we had Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb as well. So we had these various extremist and terrorist organizations already operating. So... The, the, the 9-11 and what happened in the wake of 9-11 became this sort of snowball that kept gathering more snow and becoming bigger and bigger, which is why it took so long to write the book. And also, if you actually want to get around the world and talk to women and start listening to women, that actually takes some time. And what is also quite significant, if you're doing research field work and you're trying to do it as a committed feminist and do something a little bit egalitarian you spend time with people you try to give something back you do talks you know you donate books you do what you can you have to you you have to make the relationship one of exchange and not just you coming and doing human rights tourism and feeding off other people's misery to publish your book so it becomes quite a complicated conversation and also when i was visiting places like mindanao the people in Mindanao had to worry about my safety because the fact that I was a Westerner visiting Mindanao also made me a target, which made my friends a target because Westerners were abducted by Abu Sayyaf. So these, these are not straightforward conversations and doing research on these sorts of questions is not a straightforward task. So that's another reason it took a long time. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR 855 on your AM dial. I'm speaking to Associate Professor Bronwyn Winter about women, insecurity and violence post 9-11. That's quite scary, isn't it? Well... It's scary. I mean, when I went to Afghanistan to do the, as part of the, the book I did with Susan in 2002, you know, everyone was freaked out that I was going to Afghanistan. And, you know, and so I, you know, go to these dangerous places and, well, you know, that's just life. You know, most of the world is a dangerous place these days. And I think in Australia, with all the security chatter that goes on in Australia and all this hyping up of anything that goes wrong, Australia's incredibly safe. And, you know, what what is really quite... I'm outraged, and I think many of us are outraged by the Australian state's attitude to asylum seekers, because if anyone isn't a threat to Australia, it's those people, because they're fleeing the violence, they're not coming to create it. And when a safe place like Australia becomes so inhospitable to those people who are fleeing for their lives, that, for me, really demonstrates to me what a big mess the world is in and how, what 
huge inequalities we're dealing with on all sorts of levels, not just socioeconomic, but in terms of power, in terms of, you know, who has the right to move around, who is safe, who is not safe, how we define safety, and so on. Yeah, it certainly, it certainly is. It's I'm quite ashamed myself to be an Australian where we lock up innocent people and especially young children. It's disgusting. Indeed, and I'm I'm actually working on the European Union's um, approach to asylum at the moment, which is you know, which is well inconsistent and self-contradictory and all sorts of things. But when you look at the European Union compared to some other places, it isn't all bad. It's not all good either. It's very far from all good. But the European Union has become part of the fortress of the West where people are closing doors. And with the exception of Germany and Canada, and Germany has now has closed its doors again, but with the exception of Germany and Canada, if you go throughout the Western world, there is this huge hostility towards asylum seekers. Huge. Mm. And so, because most asylum seekers in the world are actually in other very unstable countries. They're in neighbouring countries. Most of the Syrian asylum seekers aren't in Europe. They're in Turkey and Lebanon and Jordan. But anyway, that actually isn't something that was in the book because I had to stop the book somewhere. (laughs) The 2015-2016 refugee so-called crisis in Europe isn't actually part of the book, although I do talk about refugees and displaced persons in the book. Now, could you tell us about some of your interactions with feminists in the Philippines? Yeah, sure. the, the interaction was serendipitous, and it was a country I'd long been curious about, but I'd never had a sort of occasion, I'd never had a, an in to visit, because if you're actually going to do serious feminist work in a country, you need to have connections with people to actually be an entry point. Otherwise, you just sort of swan in there as an academic, you know, and try to contact people and do your interviews, and you scratch the surface. So... I, was, I visited the Philippines three times. Uh, one of those times I was at a conference and I was traveling with a group of women from Australia that were invited to this conference. And then we went to Mindanao as well, but that was not the first time I'd been to Mindanao. And so I did some talks for people. I did talks for trade unions, for feminist groups. A woman who lived in a, a shanty town, a, a sort of elder of the community, in this sort of radical left feminist community in Cebu City, which is in the Visayas, which is sort of in the middle of the Philippines, because the Philippines is over a thousand islands, right? Most people live on the largest island in the north, which is Luzon, but it's, it's, you know, it's quite a big place and has many different ethnic groups and dialects spoken and so on. So, you know, I got invited by this thing, and people let me into their lives, which was quite extraordinary. But at the same time, if you're going to walk into people's lives, you have to hang around a little bit, and you have to give back, because otherwise you're just this academic who comes and says, you know, well, I want want you to be a subject of my research now. And it's like they're there in some sort of bell jar, and you're, you know, writing notes on them, and that really is unhealthy. So... The contacts developed over time. I got to meet more people. I got to talk with women who had been in prostitution in the, because the former bases in Clark and Subic Bay, the U.S. left those bases. Uh, there was a, a volcano that erupted that pretty much destroyed Subic, and then the Philippine Senate voted to outlaw U.S owned bases in the Philippines, US-controlled bases, yes? So the bases closed down, but what happened is the bases then became sort of export processing zones for companies to invest and set up factories, and so there were sort of, you know, clothing factories, and, you know, Yokohama has a tire factory in one of the areas, and so on. And they also became huge sex tourism sites. And 
Cynthia Enlow has written about this quite a lot, but when you have militarization of places, you also get prostitution developing. And that's systematic. So, and Philippine women are, tend to be conceptualized as sort of somehow inherently prostitutable, yes? So we have, you know, the so-called mail-order brides, which is a terrible term, but, you know, women coming from the Philippines to get married in Australia, which is a sort of flip side of the story of prostitution, really. So th- these women sort of become commodities. And so tech, sex, actually, Clark now is now the second sex tourism destination in Southeast Asia after, I think, uh, there's a town in Thailand, which uh, name I can't remember momentarily. But there are flights now. Some Asian airlines organize flights specifically to these destinations to use for people who want to go as sex tourists. And I've actually met some of the people who go as sex tourists. I've been to the bars, and some of the bars you can't go in without being accompanied by men. So there were male activists who accompanied us into the bar, and we struck up conversations with the waiters and the dancers and so on. So it's extraordinarily exploitative. And even though prostitution is supposedly outlawed in the Philippines, it happens, and we all know it happens. So I, got, I sort of got to talk to trade unionists who were trying to organize factory workers. There's a huge Korean shipyard now in Subic Bay. I got to talk to people who were organizing you know, workers there. We talked about the environmental degradation in the Philippines following U.S. military activities there because the U.S. Department of Defense is one of the world's biggest polluters. So everywhere you have a military base, you also have pollution. So you have prostitution, you have pollution, you have, you know, you have children that are born out of these sorts of relationships too. So you have all these sorts of issues that the women are cleaning up all these messes. So I got to talk to lots of different people. I got to talk to Muslim women activists in Mindanao, some of whom would probably be identified as terrorists by the Philippine state. You know, I never feel for one moment felt threatened by them, but there, there are terrorists and terrorists, depending on who's doing the defining. And this is not Al-Qaeda, this is not Abu, Abu Sayyaf. Let's, let's be clear about that. You know, we have different, there are different groups of people, and they don't all speak with one voice. And there's also issues about... The the Muslim area of the Philippines is the poorest region in the Philippines, but it's also one of the richest in terms of natural wealth, in terms of mineral deposits, in terms of vegetation, lush vegetation, water, and so on. So it's sort of the fruit basket of the Philippines. At the same time, there is um, room for mineral exploitation as well, and there's also an important base in the south of the island that the U.S. uses. So... I got to talk to a lot of people involved in these sorts of issues all over the Philippines and, and, got, and got to do this over several years, so that was a huge privilege. I even got to meet the Philippines' first gay Muslim group. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, was, that was a buzz. That was really amazing. And uh, this happened because there was, in, in, in the island of Mindanao, there's a, something called a tri-people peace movement, and the tri-people are the Christians who were considered immigrants, because before there was Spanish colonization in the Philippines, there was the Brunei Sultanate. There was actually Muslim expansion into Southeast Asia and into the Philippines. So before the Philippines was Christianized, it was Muslim, it was Islamicized in the south. So they're quite an old population. So, so the Christians who've come to settle in Mindanao were always considered immigrants. So you have the Muslims, which are called Moros, which is a Spanish word, yeah, for more. You have the Moros, you have the immigrants, and then you have the Lumad, who are the tribal peoples of the Philippines. And you have a number of tribal groups all over the Philippines who speak different dialects and don't necessarily identify as either Christian or Muslim. And you have people who have converted to Protestantism and uh, with progressive Protestant churches like the Uniting Church and so on. And so we had 
this big peace meeting with this tribe people's movement in, in one of my visits there, and my last visit actually, and <laughs> there were nuns, there were Marxist students, there were women who were Muslim who were actually fasting because it was Ramadan, there were, there were uh, Protestant activists, there were the tribal peoples, there were all these, and it was a women's meeting, it was a big women's meeting. And, and sitting across round the circle, there were these women, I thought, hmm, they'd look really at home in the streets of Northcote or Newtown in Sydney. They look really dikey. <laughs> and we got talking, and well, no, they didn't speak good English, but we talked through an interpreter, and then when we met with the group, one of the men in the group spoke quite good English, so he was an interpreter for them. But it turned out they were lesbians, and they were part of this gay Muslim group. And they were actually claiming the right to go and pray in the mosques as our openly gay and things like that. And they were talking about the sorts of repression they got and persecutions and arrests and being closeted in their families and all the sorts of stories you know about in traditional communities. And so that was, that was really, and, they, and they're called I'm Glad, which I think is a great acronym. But there's quite, there are actually, since that time, there have been other groups. There's a lesbian group now in the south of Mindanao, who's a, who's a different group. So there's quite a lot of things going on, in fact. And, 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 and the feminist activists and the left-wing activists and the anti-war activists uh, have built some quite broad coalitions talking about militarization and its links to things like environmental degradation, ethnic oppression, prostitution and so on. been speaking to Associate Professor Bronwyn Winter. You've been listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. Hope you've enjoyed the program. I've certainly enjoyed your company. And stay tuned for Are You Looking At Me?